Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Hyun Lee. Hyun Lee is a New York City-based writer and activist. She is a member of the Solidarity Committee for Democracy and Peace in Korea. She is also a Korea Policy Institute fellow and a member of No Dut Dal for Korean Community Development. And there is a wonderful website uh, where you can find some of her work called Zoom in Korea. Zoom, Z-O-O-M, in Korea.org. Hyun Lee, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. So we are recording this today, Tuesday, May 9th, and there is an election in South Korea for a new president. Uh, a liberal Democrat, Moon Jae-in, is likely to become the new president. What would his presidency mean in terms of relations between South Korea and North Korea? War threat in the past, before a major election, uh, had been very effective in swinging the South Korean electorate to the right. But it seems like that's not going to be the case this year. As we record this, they're probably just about closing the, the um, voting booth, and we should be getting the results. According to all of the polls, um, Moon Jae-in, the Liberal Democrat, is way ahead. Um, he has garnered uh, uh, about 41.4% of the vote, um, followed by the uh, very conservative um, Hong Jun-kyo at 23%, and then the centrist Ahn Chersu at 21%. Um, Moon Jae-in, uh, he was the chief of staff for the late former President Bill Bo-hyun, who served from 2003 to 2008. Um, and Lo Muyan is known for continuing uh, the policy called Sunshine Policy, uh, which uh, was a policy of his predecessor, Kim Dae-jung, and it was one of engagement and economic cooperation with North Korea. So if Moon Jae-in is elected, uh, he has said that he is going to reverse South Korea's policy towards North Korea to one of engagement. And he said he would open the Chaesung Industrial Complex, which is the joint inter-Korean economic project between North and South Korea. That was like the last remaining hallmark of peaceful North-South engagement um, before it was shut down by the Park administration in 2016. Um, I think the question is, if Moon is elected... Um, you know, which is, uh, you know, pretty much uh, um, a certainty. Will the Trump administration recalibrate its strategy to allow Moon to lead? And um, if not, how much is Moon going to stand up to the Trump administration so that South Korea can chart an independent path from the United States? Yeah, so there's no runoff in an election if the winner does not have a majority. That's right. And do you, uh, I mean, it's remarkable news, uh, wonderful news, that an electorate would turn against warmongering and vote for a peace candidate. Do you, do you attribute that to public desire for peace, or are there just other factors that are outweighing the, uh, the preference for warmongering? Yes. I think um, definitely the public 
discontent with the last administration, uh, which uh, Takane administration, which was a very authoritarian uh, government um, and had a very hawkish stance towards North, towards North Korea. Uh, I, I think that definitely swayed um, the public in Moon's favor uh, for this election. Uh, and I do think that the public's um, consciousness has really been raised through the mass protests that we saw last winter, um, the millions of people coming out onto the streets um, and rejecting the last administration and creating the opportunity for this new election. Um, I think that they are no longer falling for you know, a hawkish candidate who basically prey on public paranoia to garner votes. I think the public has, has rejected that and is saying uh, we want a different kind of approach uh, through diplomacy and dialogue with North Korea. Yeah, wonderful mass nonviolent protests that actually led to an impeachment. I wish uh, that would be a lesson for the United States. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, do you think uh, that Moon Jae-in will fare better on uh, issues of war and peace and other issues than did Park? Well, I think as a liberal Democrat, Moon is, of course, far better than Park, um, whose administration, as I said, was authoritarian, and she really did roll back uh, decades of gains that were made by the pro-democracy forces in, in South Korea. However, um, I think the greatest tragedy of this year's election is that it was people power that created this opportunity uh, for uh, for change, uh, but there is no political party currently in South Korea that can actually consolidate that people power, build on the momentum of its victory, and then fight for systemic change. That is really what uh, the people demanded through these mass protests. Um, so, you know, Moon Jae-in's party had done very little to challenge the previous administration's policies, such as the labor market reform initiative, which is all about um, undermining the power of labor unions and creating an even more precarious workforce in South Korea. Um, his party did very little to actually block the ongoing deployment of the U.S. missile defense system in Songju, Korea. Um, and also, when Moon Jae-in was in office um, as chief of staff for former President Oh Moo Hyun, um, the administration started the negotiations with the United States on the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement, which has led to disastrous privatization of public services such as the national health care system. Um, so, you know, the mass movement that ousted Park clearly has a lot of work to do still with Moon in office. And we should also note that, you know, Park's impeachment, which created the opportunity for this election, didn't come about through... It was not the opposition party that created that um, situation. It was really the organized power of millions of ordinary people who took to the streets week after week demanding her ouster um, that eventually pushed the opposition parties into action. So um, I think, yes, uh, Moon is better than Park, especially in terms of foreign policy, especially in terms of policy towards North Korea. Uh, but I think, um, you know, the progressive movement 
still has a lot of work to do in terms of pressing his administration uh, on all these uh, issues that I've mentioned. We're speaking with Hyun Lee. Check out the website zoomincorea.org. Uh, Hyun Lee, what, I'm hopeful that that threat of impeachment empowers the public to have some say over the next government, um, but what what are the priorities uh, of the public if they had their their will in South Korea? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the most pressing task for the new administration uh, is to mediate the current crisis between the United States and North Korea, um, which has really sort of put everyone on the Korean Peninsula under these uh, very dangerous war threats. Um, you know, Trump has said that he's willing to sit down with Kim Jong-un recently, but uh, no one, uh, including China, is able to broker that meeting. Um, and I think that has to be the priority of the incoming South Korean leader, presumably Moon Jae-in. Um, I think uh, for reconciliation with the North and for permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula, um, the South Korean people, the progressive movement, will need to continue to press Moon Jae-in to really stand up for the Trump administration and, uh, and so that it will be able to chart a path that is independent from the United States. Um, and I think the people will need to continue to press uh, the, the new administration demand that the United States end the very provocative war exercises that conduct every year um, and uh, withdraw the very dangerous missile defense system um, that the U.S. is deploying in Pongja, Korea, um, and also uh, press on North Korea to freeze its uh, nuclear missile test. Um, so I think that's number one. Um, another very pressing task for the progressive movement is the fighting against the government's labor market reform initiative. Um, I think that fight will intensify even with a liberal Democrat in the Blue House. Um, so, you know, and, and really what was exposed through the Pakunhei impeachment and her scandal with the, you know, her so-called confidant Chesun was this very corrupt system uh, at the root of South Korea's economy. Uh, this very cozy, backstretching relationship between South Korea's largest conglomerates like Samsung, LG, etc., and South Korea's political leaders. So unless the public continues to press for systemic change around that, I think that will probably uh, remain unchanged. And then lastly, I'll just, I'll just mention that South Korea has something called a national security law. This is a very archaic law uh, that um, is sort of an inheritance from uh, the Japanese colonial era, um, and it's a law that is mainly used to punish political opponents, dissolve social organizations. It was used to dissolve a political party during the Park administration. Um, and uh, that is a task that even Moon, when he was Dominic's chief of staff, failed to um, uh, abolish. I think that it should be the priority of the next administration to once and for all get rid of this law and um, that will also take an organized fight from the left to make that happen. 
In terms, Hyun Lee, of South Korea taking an independent path from the United States, uh, mm-hmm. is there any precedent for it having done so? When has the South Korean government ever stood up to the United States? If the South Korean government wants to uh, end the war exercises or take out the so-called mm-hmm. missile defense system or, mm-hmm. uh, God forbid, send the U.S. troops home to the United States or sign a peace mm-hmm. treaty with the North, illegally you would think it could do so but is there any precedent for that right well um you know uh that is a very good question um i think former president did try to um forge a different path that is independent from the united states unfortunately he had a very hawkish george w bush to deal with uh when he was in office um and I think uh, he was uh, in the in the end he was unsuccessful um, in charting a different path because uh, first of all the United States still has wartime operation control over South Korean forces. That means if a war breaks out out in Korea, uh, it's the U.S. commander that is in charge of South Korean forces, um, and the very provocative military exercises are led by uh, the U.S. commander. Um, and so the United States still exercises considerable political as well as economic control uh, over South Korea, and no president has effectively been able to um, afford a different path. And so I think um, even with Moon Jae-in, I think it's really going to require a push from uh, the left and a push from the mass movement that ousted uh, Park Geun-hye uh, to to really uh, make sure that he can um, uh, could, you know stand up to the U.S. Uh, I, I certainly hope so, and I hope the rest of the world and we in the United States can help. Um, you, you say that Trump has said he's willing to sit down with Kim Jong-un, but what I've often heard coming out of Washington is uh, the U.S. should meet with North Korea only after North Korea makes every major concession desired by the U.S., and then th- there should be a meeting. Uh, is, is the U.S. really open to uh, a, a negotiation uh, without preconditions? Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's not clear to me that um, the, the people who represent the Trump administration are on the same page about what the U.S. approach is towards North Korea. We've heard very contradictory statements coming out of uh, the administration. I mean, Trump has said, we want to pursue this peacefully, and, you know, I'm willing to sit down with Kim Jong-un. At the same time, you have uh, General McMaster um, and Tillerson basically saying, you know, we're going to slap more sanctions on North Korea, and a military action is still on the table. Um, so these are very contradictory statements, and, and as you say, you know, they said we'll only meet, um, you know, under the right conditions, or we'll only meet if, if North Korea commits to demilitarization. Well, you know, many North Korea experts have pointed out that denuclearization uh, is probably a, a lost cause at this point. Um, the best thing that the U.S. can um, uh, hope to achieve at this point is a freeze, which I think is still a very worthwhile goal uh, because, uh, you know, many people have pointed out that North Korea may be very close to developing an intercontinental ballistic missile 
that can deliver a nuclear warhead to the continental U.S. So freezing North Korea's missile and nuclear program at this point so that it cannot reach that capability is still a very worthwhile strategic goal for the United States. Um, and I think the way that that could happen is, um, you know, if we look at a historical precedent, um, we can look at um, what happened during the Clinton administration. Um, you know, during at the end of the Clinton administration, we had Kim Dae-jung, uh, who was the um, uh, the former president of South Korea, who uh, was a proponent of the Sunshine Policy towards the North. And there was, in 2000, there was a historic summit between Kim Dae-jung and the North Korean leader back then, Kim Jong-il. And um, they agreed to a peaceful reconciliation and process of reunification between the North and South without foreign intervention. Um, and it was that summit that actually created the conditions for uh, a different policy in Washington. So that summit was followed by um, what is called the 2000 Joint Communique signed between the United States and the DPRK, where the Clinton administration uh, and the North Korean government agreed that North Korea will freeze their nuclear weapons program in exchange for uh, U.S. commitment to non-aggression towards North Korea and also a movement towards normalizing relations between the two countries. Um, so, it, unfortunately, that was quickly reversed by because Clinton, that was at the tail end of Clinton's administration, and then we know uh, he was followed by George W. Bush, who came in and basically reversed that policy and called North Korea part of the axis of evil and didn't follow through on that agreement. But there is that historic precedent. So yeah. we have another situation now where we have a pro-engagement president in South Korea coming into office, um, he can create a condition uh, whereby uh, it brokers uh, a, a, a meeting uh, or a path towards diplomacy between the Trump administration and, and North Korea. And it seems to me, if I'm recalling correctly, that in the short life of that agreement, North Korea complied with its side of it. Uh, and it, yes. it also seems that North Korea in recent months uh, has proposed uh, agreements that would include uh, halting its nuclear weapons program and the U.S. and South Korea halting or scaling back their uh, aggressive uh, military exercises and flights over North Korea and so forth. Uh, so it seems mm -hmm. there's an obvious solution if someone uh, wanted to go for it or felt empowered to defy the United States in going for it. Is, isn't it uh, sort of readily available? Yeah. I mean, you know, we should know that, as you say, North Korea has uh, repeatedly offered to freeze its nuclear weapons development in exchange for assurance of non-aggression from the United States. But the U.S. has consistently refused that offer. Um, and even as recently as 2015, during the Obama administration, North Korea said to the United States, we will stop testing nuclear weapons if you stop your military exercises. The U.S. promptly rejected that offer. Um, so, 
you know, I think the question is why, when the path out of this current crisis is very clear, which is basically remove U.S. threats against North Korea in exchange for a freeze, why doesn't the United States choose that path, but instead choose to escalate tensions? And I think that answer um, may be found in the statement of um, past and present U.S. generals in Korea. Um, the former U.S. Forces Korea commander, E.B. Bell, uh, was once asked in an interview, why even after the end of the Cold War does the United States need to maintain its troops in South Korea? And his answer was quite candid. He said, 24% of U.S. foreign trade flows through that area, and we depend on global markets for our national well-being. It's extremely important that this area of the world remains open to free trade so that our business interests can flourish. So that was his answer for why the U.S. had troops in that area. The current U.S. Uh, Forces Korea commander, Vincent Brooke, he recently said uh, at a Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee hearing, uh, the U.S.-RK alliance benefits the U.S. economy because... 90% of South Korea's weapons budget goes to purchasing U.S. weapons systems. So it's very clear from their comments that U.S. capital and the U.S. military-industrial complex have huge interest in keeping uh, a U.S. presence in South Korea. Um, and the, so the so-called North Korean threat is, is only a, a, a convenient justification um, uh, so that the U.S. can maintain its presence. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that is the primary thing that is really blocking uh, the path towards dialogue, uh, towards a fundamental resolution of this crisis, towards permanent peace. Yeah. The, the propaganda in the U.S. media and U.S. culture about North Korea that plays up every flaw of which there are undoubtedly uh, many real flaws in North Korean society uh, has had a real impact, I think. Uh, here in, in Virginia, where I am, there is a University of Virginia student who is now uh, imprisoned at hard labor, reportedly, in North Korea for having supposedly mm. gone to North Korea to stupidly try to steal a flag or something. Uh, and I talk to people around town here in Virginia and they, in Charlottesville, Virginia, and they say, don't ever go to North Korea. They just lock everybody up. They're evil. They're monsters. You can't talk to them. Obviously, you can't negotiate with them. And we, we, you know, we have these stories about their evil dictator forcing everyone to get the same haircut he does and, you know, all this sort of nonsense. How do you, how do you counter uh, all of the, those stories, uh, real and false, about flaws with uh, North Korea? And how do you best get a prisoner released, uh, according to, you know, precedent of, of having done so? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we should point out that there are many people in the United States who have traveled to uh, North Korea um, as part of peace delegations, as part of commercial uh, tours. Uh, and have had, um, you know, very peaceful uh, experiences um, uh, in that country and uh, have come back to tell very different kinds of stories. Um, um, I was also part of a peace delegation to North Korea back in 2011, um, and I had uh, wonderful opportunities to meet with uh, workers, students, women, 
people of all different sectors of the North Korean society, and we were able to visit uh, factories to see how they operate, uh, cooperative farms. Um, and, you know, there's also uh, many um, commercial tour packages now that are available uh, to take people to, to go sightseeing in North Korea. I think Korea Tours is one of them. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think more of these kinds of people-to-people exchanges uh, is is what's needed really uh, to counter some of the very sort of one-sided uh, media portrayals that, that we see from North Korea. We also need to do some um, diligent sort of, um, you know, um, we have we have to really scrutinize um, the media portrayal of North Korea because you know a lot of times some of the most the more outlandish stories about North Korea, you know, um, executing, uh, you know, people and feeding them to dogs or, um, you know, know, stories of that nature, you know, they um, later uh, are found to are exposed to be completely on, you know, baseless stories um, that really have no uh, factual uh, basis for, for their reporting. But, you know, they just become, they spread, uh, throughout social media, uh, you know, as if, it, you know, it's, it's sort of like, the, you know, uh, alternative facts or fake news, um, uh, you know, when it comes to North Korea, has, has always been the case. And so I think we also have to be very careful in sort of shifting through the media coverage of North Korea to, to understand really, you know, what, what's fact and, and, and what's not true. Yeah, it's even all the language. It's a regime with prison camps. It's not an administration with prisons. It's a, a rogue state, not a right. not a benevolent imperial aggressor like the United States. So every every bit of information is slanted against it. Um, we have just a couple minutes left. What can yeah. what can people in the United States, in particular, do to help this situation and and to rein in their government's uh, aggressiveness? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as you said, challenging the, you know, very one-sided narrative about the U.S. PRK uh, crisis um, is something that is really needed at this time. Um, I think that if if the American public uh, was better informed about the history of how we actually got to this crisis, um, I think that people will have a very different view uh, of the current situation and, and, and what is needed, um, and, you know, which is basically diplomacy toward uh, ending the, uh, the ongoing Korean War between uh, the United States and North Korea, uh, replacing the armistice that was signed after the uh, Korean War, which is a temporary ceasefire, with a permanent peace treaty, normalizing relations between the U.S. and, and the DPRK, and, and, and finally, ending U.S. nuclear threats against North Korea, ending the military exercises that uh, stimulate the collapse of the North Korean regime, um, stimulate the decapitation of leadership, um, ending its uh, nuclear first strike policy against North Korea um, in exchange for a free of the North Korean missile and nuclear program. Um, I think that is the best outcome of uh, the current crisis. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, uh, understanding that history 
um, and demanding uh, that change, um, I think, is, is what's needed from the U.S. public. Um, and lastly, I'll just say, you know, we also need to question... Ten, ten seconds. Uh, yeah, the, the economy and, and culture that we have in the United States that is based on a doctrine of perpetual war. Um, I think more and more people uh, in the United States need to demand that um, we shift our financial human resources that is devoted to perpetual war towards um, uh, fulfilling human needs like creating jobs and providing uh, social services. Hyun Lee, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.